Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Hey, shalom, shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana and out of Ashes Ministries, and I hope you are doing well. How is everybody? I hope that you uh, had a wonderful uh, Hanukkah. I hope the holidays have been a, uh, a great time of family and feasting and uh, peace and, and all those kinds of things. And I hope that it's been a really, just a really wonderful time, a wonderful season for you. Uh, I know that uh, COVID and all the, the things are, are making that a little more difficult, but uh, I hope through, whether through technology or, or in person or wherever, you were able to spend some time with some folks and, and uh, enjoy the, the holiday season. Uh, we are now pivoting and approaching uh, Pesach. And you might say, well, yeah, but that's, that's like a little ways away. Oh, but like it'll feel like two weeks and Pesach will be here, especially if you uh, celebrate Purim in some kind of way. Uh, if you acknowledge Purim, uh, it falls right in the middle between Hanukkah and uh, and Pesach. So, you know, all those things, and it's going to be here before you know it. So uh, I pray that you're uh, already preparing for Pesach and that uh, getting your mind engaged and, and, uh, and starting to prepare your hearts uh, for uh, the season of Pesach. It is always an extremely, extremely exciting time. So in the last couple episodes, we have kind of taken a break from our Genesis series and um, hoping to get Kyle on for a, a few shows and and um, just trying to schedule that and work that out. And um, and so that's going to be coming up. But this uh, week, we're going to continue uh, kind of stepping away from the Gospels and, and uh, just want to just share some random things that are on my heart uh, and, uh, you know, just visit with you guys, encourage you, hopefully challenge you maybe a little bit. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at uh, Joseph, and we've been studying him the last couple of Parshot, Miketz and Vayigash. Uh, we'll continue uh, this week's Parsha. And so I want to uh, just bring some of the Joseph stuff out that I have really found helpful and really found encouraging, uh, and I hope that it will do the same for you. So before we jump in, uh, let's go to the Father and just spend a few seconds and ask Him to uh, guide and direct our time together uh, today. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we are so incredibly fortunate, Father, and we pray that the light that we acknowledge during Hanukkah, the dedication, would not die out just because it's not Hanukkah anymore, but would continue on as we look to bear your name and your image in our world. Welcome back. So, as I said, this uh, this episode, we are going to uh, spend some time talking about Joseph, uh, Yosef, 
and um, and his life and and some of the things that I love to to think about and some of the things that I, I like to to allow challenge me from uh, Joseph's story. So. Uh, the story of Joseph, of course, uh, begins in Bettersheet 37. And um, forgive me, and I can't remember who I heard say this, but uh, it's something I never realized, that Joseph's story is the longest running uh, single narrative about a single person in all of the Torah, uh, specifically, maybe even in Tanakh. And I just thought that was really interesting. So, of course, we first hear about Joseph in uh, Bettersheet 37, uh, the beginning of Parsha Vayeshev. And we hear about Jacob. This is kind of continuing Jacob's story. And um, chapter 37 is dedicated to Yosef and to his dreams. Um, the, the dreams and the reaction that that causes between he and his brothers and even uh, between his mother and father. And then the plot to kill him, which turns into throwing him into a pit, which turns in him to um, uh, selling him into slavery and then going back and telling Yaakov what, what has happened. And there's something really, um, really cool that happens in the text, and it happens a few times in Torah. Um, you, we see it over, and it's uh, I've understood it as a literary device. In other words, it's the way that the story is put together um, for a specific reason. It may not be chronological. It may be chronological. It may, uh, you know, there's just different reasons why certain things are put in certain places. So. You have Jacob's story, Yaakov's story going, chapters, you know, 34, 35, 36, 37. And then you have Joseph introduced in chapter 37. And you're, you're at the pinnacle of Joseph's story, right? You're, he's been hated by his brothers. He's been thrown into this pit. Uh, he's been sold. And this, this bloody, uh, you know, coat has been, uh, a goat has been slain and the blood has been poured on the coat and taken back to, to Yaakov and, that's where chapter 37 ends. And then all of a sudden, you're reading, you're like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? Like, what, you know, you're really into the story by this point. The author, uh, the editor, whoever, whoever you want to think about that, has done their job, and they have, they have suckered us into this story, and we are in it. We are, you know, we are wanting to know what's going to happen next. And then all of a sudden, chapter 38 rolls around, and it says, it was at that time that Yehuda, Judah, went down from his brothers and turned away towards an Adulamite man whose name was Hirah. So it's, it's odd for us because it's a chapter break. But remember in the original text, there are no chapter numbers, right? So in the natural flow of, of reading the story, you, even though if there wasn't a chapter break there, you still get this idea of like, oh, Joseph and, and all this stuff's happening. And like, this is a, an incredible, uh, you know, incredible drama happening. And, and you know, we're, we're on a cliffhanger's edge. And then all of a sudden it turns and begins to talk about Judah. And so it tells this fascinating story. And I love the story. And I've come to love it more over the years of Judah and Tamar. And so you know the story uh, where, you know, Judah, uh, Judah has these, these three sons and two of them God kills, which I know is wrong, but if, if you have a kind of a twisted personality like, like I do, um, I read about, you know, Ornan, and I read about the two sons, and it's, you know, like, and God killed him, and then God killed him also. And it's, it's not funny, but it's, it's so interesting how it, it just lays it out there. And that evokes, or maybe that should evoke, uh, some questions for us. You know, not, not necessarily like, well, well, why? Well, of course we ask those questions, but the the uh the the idea of like this is this is a rep, this is representing who God is 
And and what do we do with that? How you know does does God have the right to just just kill people just because? Um, and I know, of course, there's a lot of Jewish tradition around. There's a lot of uh, you know uh, midrashic understanding, and, and all those things are really really interesting. Not the point of our, our what I want to get to uh, necessarily, but we have this beautiful story of, of Judah and Tamar, and and how Judah ends up coming back and saying, you know what, I'm wrong. She's the righteous one, and uh, and and then chapter 39 just picks right back up with Joseph. So in between the beginning, it's kind of like bookends, like the beginning of Joseph's story and then where it picks up in chapter 39, you have this kind of interlude of the story of Judah. And if you remember, as we kind of walked through, uh, through the first parts of Genesis in the beginning of our, our show, you know, when we started last year, you have uh, these, these periods of times and you have them separated by a word. You'll have narrative sections and you have them separated by a transitionary word. Does anybody remember what that word is? Anybody know what that word is? Uh, we have a Parsha by its name. It's called Toldot. And so you'll have, um, you know, you'll have Genesis 1, and uh, then you'll have this word Toldot. These are the generations, or these are the accounts, or these are the records of creation. And you have Genesis 2. And then you go a little bit longer, you have, you know, these are the, these are the, this is the genealogy, or these are the generations of Adam, and then, you know, you have the table of nations, and you have all these, and these, these points in scripture, these narrative points are, are transitioned by this, this idea of following a character, following a person, and their story, and then pulling out and focusing on another person's story that's running parallel to theirs, and kind of giving a summation of that story, and then pulling back out and refocusing on the kind of the main storyline. And I've learned from Rabbi Foreman, which, you know, I can't say enough about Rabbi Foreman's work in, in Bereshit, uh, for sure, his Aleph Beta um, videos and th- teachings, and in his books on Bereshit, they are just absolutely phenomenal and absolutely fantastic. And so I would encourage you to just go gobble them up, go buy everything, uh, and, and start to work through them. But Usually, this is done according to Rabbi Foreman because they're they're the narrator, the story, God Himself, Hashem is trying to tie together principles, and the the text is speaking backwards and forwards to itself. Um, so none of these things are in a vacuum, and none of these things are just one simple uh, principle or one simple storyline that we're following. the 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 text and the word is so dynamic, and so uh, so deep, and so layered that we, we see these things picking up on each other. So if we remember the story of uh, Judah and Tamar, this is in Bereshit 38, and in verse, um, let's see, verse uh, 16, let's just say. And so it says, so he, he detoured uh, to her by the road and said, come if you please. Let, let me back up a little bit because this, this context is important. Um, verse 13 of chapter 38, And Tamar was told as follows, Behold, your father-in-law is coming up from Timnah to shear his sheep, so she removed her widow's garb from upon her, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself up. And then she sat by the crossroads, which is on the road towards Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown, and she had not been given to him as a wife. So you have the Leverite marriage kind of thing going on there, right? In verse 15, um, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, since she had covered herself and her face. So what's really important about this um, is is to understand the the type of uh, of harlot that this speaks of is specifically a a religious harlot a temple prostitute 
Um, and the culture that surrounds this idea of, of temple prostitutes is that um, the reason you the reason you consort with a temple prostitute is that it's an act of worship. I know that sounds really weird uh, and all to us today, but you it's important that Tamar is is dressing herself as a as a temple. Uh, uh, you know, temple prostitute as a, a harlot of a certain specific type, not just, you know, not just kind of any old prostitute. Um, and so what does that say to us? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that Judah is in a, um, in a, a weird state, in a weird place, maybe. Um, this type of relation with this type of prostitute um, equals idol worship. It equals worship of the God at the temple which she is quote unquote working, right? Just a really interesting, interesting thing. And so if we continue reading, uh, verse 15, uh, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, right? So verse 16, so he detoured uh, to her by the road and said, come if you please, let me consort with you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me if you consort with me? And he replied, I will send you a kid of the goats from the flock. And she said, provided you leave a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, and listen to this, your signet, your wrap, and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and consorted with her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, left, and removed her veil from upon her, and put on her widow's garb. So Judah promises a goat, but because... um, because he doesn't have it with him, of course, then she asks for this down payment, this deposit, basically. And it's a signet and a wrap, a, co- a cloak, and a staff. So if we think about Judah, we think about where this is placed in the story, right? So the last chapter, chapter 37, Joseph and the dreams and all the kind of things, Reuben wants to save Joseph, save his life, right? And Judah is the one who comes up with the idea, well, let's just sell him instead, then we'll do the goat thing and the blood and we'll take it back to dad. He's the one that kind of comes up with that whole story, right? And then remember, Reuben comes back and goes like, what happened? How am I ever going to, you know, how am I going to tell dad and what, what's going to happen? Because he's the, he's the Basar, he's the firstborn. And so they, they have this, you have this, this theme of a, of a goat and a coat, right? Uh, Judah leaves after the brothers do the whole thing and he goes down to the Adulamite Hirah. And, and this is where this story takes place. And so he's away from the family, he's out of his father's house, he's out of, his, you know, out of the father's land and, and all these kinds of things. And he, and he goes and he, he basically, it looks like, it looks like from the, the harlotry thing that he's basically kind of taken up idolatry. Now we, we can say, yes, he did, or maybe he, no, he didn't. It's just, you know, he, he wanted to have a, a, you know, he wanted to have a night of fun or whatever we can, we might want to say about that. But this, she says to leave your signet. So he has a signet ring. Which means that he's Judah is not some like poor you know lone traveler just out there in the in the wilderness. It says that he's going to shear his sheep. So he's a man of of of, of abundance. He's got a flock. He's he, Judah at this point is probably a if not a, a a king among the peoples. He is a he is a judge maybe. Uh, he's someone of very very high standing. Not just, not everybody has a signet ring, right? So the signet ring bears your symbol and it is, uh, it is put in wax when a document is sealed. And that signet is, is like your fingerprint in, in some senses. It is, it is the seal of authority. It's the seal of, uh, you know, it's, you know whose it is by the seal. 
Um, and so to me, that just speaks to, jo- to Judah's prominence, that he's not, like I said, he's not just some lone wanderer that's just kind of hanging out in the desert. He is, he is a man of standing. People know who he is, uh, probably know his story, or some of his story knows where he comes from. They've heard about this large, the family of Abraham. They know these people. A lot of these, if we read through the genealogies, they're cousins or you know, familially connected in some kind of way, uh, distant cousins or, or whatever the case may be. And, and so the signet ring is really important as it speak to his, speaks to his prominence and his standing, and, and also his staff and his wrap or his, his cloak. Um, and so you have, uh, I think Rabbi Foreman talks about it as uh, goats and coats, you know, that kind of thing. Um, goats and coats. So if you'll, you'll remember in the, the last chapter when they, they uh, sold Joseph, what did they kill in order to dip his coat in blood? They killed a goat, right? You have this, this goat and coat theme that go between these, these two chapters, linking these two things together. And what's, what's fascinating about it is that the link doesn't stop there. It continues on because Judah's story is placed kind of right at the beginning, right in the middle of this narrative about Joseph. And, and this, this thing that Judah, Judah comes to this realization that, uh, you know, he says later on in, uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 38, when, uh, when he's confronted, um, he says, uh, you know, it was verse 24, um, and you know, he said, Judah was told your daughter-in-law has committed harlotry and she's received by, conceived uh, by harlotry. And he says, take her out and let her be burned. And she was taken out and uh, she said, by whom the men these belong, I'm with child. And, he, and she said, identify, identify. If you please, whose are the signet, this wrap, this cloak, and this staff? And verse 26, and Judah recognized Judah recognized, and, and he said, she is right. It is from me, and as much as I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and it was not, and, and he was not intimate with her anymore. And so you have this, this goat and coat, and Judah recognizes. She says, recognize, identify. What's interesting about that is in the previous chapter, if we go back to chapter 37, uh, you have the, 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 the guys come back, the brothers come back, and they are carrying uh, Joseph's tunic, verse 31, or verse 30, rather, of chapter 37. It says, returning to his brothers, he said, the boy is gone, and I, where can I go? They took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a goatling, and dipped the tunic in the blood. They dispatched the fine woolen tunic, and they brought it to their father, and we said, we found this, identify, the same Hebrew word there identify, if please, if this is your son's tunic or not. In verse 33, it says, and he, Yaakov, he recognized it. He recognized it. And so what you have in here is you have these two stories speaking back to it. Judah who and his brothers who, who concocted this wild thing to get rid of the dreamer, to get rid of their brother, whom, whom their father loved. And they say, here, take this and, and recognize it. This is a, a, a cloak a coat, a tunic, a wrap, whatever you want to call it, that is dipped in goat's blood. Identify, notice it, tell us if this is it. And Jacob goes, yes, this is it. A massive revelation that now is going to, going to severely diminish the years that he has left as he mourns for and as he sorrows for his beloved son. Why, is, why then does it all of a sudden turn to Judah? Judah's the one that concocted the whole deal, right? So in the next chapter, this is, this is Hashem's way of, of showing Judah exactly what 
he did to his father. And, and he's replaying the story of the last chapter. Yes, it deals with harlotry. There's a lot of elements in Judah's experience that were not in the previous experience. But when you get to that, when you get to the verse where, where Tamar says, hey, these, these are the things by, by whom I'm pregnant, by the man's things by whom I'm pregnant. And she says, identify them. And Judah recognizes him. He comes to a place of an, of an incredible revelation where, where that's going to forever shape his life, that is going to change the trajectory of his life. And I can't help but think that Judah, in, in this revelatory moment where he says, she's more righteous than I, she's right. These things, are, these things are mine because I did not give my son. I cannot help but think that when, when she says, identify, and he recognizes him, boom, at that moment, he had to have remembered the conversation that he had. We don't know how many years have passed uh, between you know the the ordeal with Joseph and and Judah in this this particular uh, situation, but I cannot help but but just have to believe that he his immediately his mind immediately snaps back to that moment where they're standing before Jacob and they say identify these and Jacob recognized them and he begins to mourn for his beloved son, and now Judah is being told by this young woman identify these, and boom, he recognizes them. And that wordplay and the idea that there's, there's goats in both and coats in both stories link these two things together and show us this turning point and this experiential um, growth that happens in Judah's, in Judah's life. This is really important for kind of what I want to get to uh, towards the end of, of this particular episode. Um, because this kind of theme is going to play up again as we go through Joseph's life. And so if we continue to move on, the story now snaps back to Joseph in Egypt. And of course, we know he is, um, he is brought to Potiphar, uh, the courtier of, of Pharaoh uh, the, and the chamberlain of the butchers, a uh, prominent Egyptian uh, who purchased him from the Israelites, and he comes there, and he has the whole deal with Potiphar's wife. Uh, of course, he gets thrown and cast into into jail, and uh, there are uh, there are some things that happen with the cupbearer and the baker in jail. Of course, we know those cu- those those things, and he interprets those dreams. Uh, the cupbearer uh, is is. He's a really important guy. Uh, some of your your translations may call him the butler or uh, things like that. He is he is the the last line of defense for the king or for the pharaoh. Um, if anyone is going to kill the king, they're not going to come in with a knife and and assassinate him. Most likely, they're going to be much more subversive and much more sneaky, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna do it usually through poison or through something like that. And so the the if he's just the cupbearer, that's enough because he's the, like I said, he's the last line of defense uh, in keeping the Pharaoh safe from assassination or from any kind of foul play. If he's the butler, that's a whole different level because the butler controls all of the house. He knows the guests that are coming and going. He controls the staff that are working in the house. He is over all of the household itself of Pharaoh. Um, he's over the baker. He's over, you know, he, he is the one that know, is supposed to know everything about what's going on. Uh, and so, again, just kind of put him in his rightful, rightful standing and, and rightful place. And so we know that both the cupbearer and the baker, uh, they dream these, uh, these dreams, and, and Joseph interprets them. 
and uh, he gives them the, you know, the interpretation, verse 16 of chapter 40, uh, when the chamberlain of the baker saw they interpreted well, uh, he said, I too in my dream, three wicker baskets, and he goes on and tells, and Joseph's, you know, interpretation is, is not real, real good. And so verse 20, it says, and it was on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he counted the chamberlain of the cupbearers and the chamberlain of the bakers among his servants. He restored the chamberlain of the cupbearers and his cupbearing, and he placed the cup on Pharaoh's palm. But he hanged the, uh, the chamberlain of the bakers, just as Joseph has inter- had interpreted to them. Now in verse 14, just to kind of go back a little bit, in verse 14 is a really important part of this story. Verse 14 says, just as Joseph saying, if you would only think of me when you yourself, when he, when he benefits you, and if you will do me the kindness, if you please, and mention me to Pharaoh, then you would take me out of this building. So Joseph is asking to think of me and mention me. Those are two, they're phrased two different ways for a very specific reason. And right after the break, we're going to talk about why. All right, so welcome back to this second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, where we're talking about the life of Joseph. We spent the first segment talking about Judah, uh, how his story kind of just interrupts Joseph's story, and and why that may be, and some interesting connections there. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Foreman, again. Uh, and then so now we're we're talking about Joseph. He's in prison, and he is uh, interpreting the dreams of the the butler or the cupbearer and the baker. And in verse fourteen, just to kind of review. In verse 14 of chapter 40, Joseph says, If only you think of me when you yourself, uh, think of me with yourself when he benefits you, speaking of Pharaoh, and will you do me a kindness, if you please, and mention me to Pharaoh, then you would take me out of this building. For indeed I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing for them to have put me in the pit. So this Joseph asks, If you would think of me and mention me to Pharaoh. Now, we may not think a lot about that until we get to verse 23. And if you're just reading it, it doesn't read exactly like the way we would expect it. And it says, verse 23 of chapter 40, Yet the chamberlain of cupbearers, the the cupbearer, the butler, did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. And these words are super interesting. So we, the, the Hebrew word here is zakar, right? To remember, zakar. Um, we have uh, the uh, feast day called Yom HaZikaron, right? Uh, we have, uh, uh, we have a, a person named Zikri, uh, which is my remembrance or a feast of remembrance. Um, and this word to remember, um, I, I think about our English way of thinking about things and how we, we define things and all. And when you when you say you know oh I need to remember to remember to do this or remember to do that, what do we generally mean when we when we think about remembering something? What do we generally mean mean by that? We we usually mean um, I have to keep it in my mind, right? I have to I have to it has to be brought back to my my mental you know environment. I have to remember it um, to think about it. And yet in in Hebrew uh, this word zakar is not only mental, but it is also uh, an action. So it is to, uh, someone told me a great definition that I really liked, uh, real concise. Um, To remember from a Hebraic standpoint means to think and act or speak on behalf of. So to think and act on behalf of 
the, the person or the, the incident. So for us just to remember maybe a mental exercise, exercise mostly, um, but in the Hebraic sense, it's to remember so that you can act. And, and really when we think about it, um, you know, some people tie a string around their finger. <laughs> it's old school. Um, you know, we make notes in our phones. We put stuff in calendars. We, we don't just put reminders. Um, we don't have reminders in our lives just so we can think about stuff, right? We, we, we have reminders so that we can be brought to our attention so that we can act on it, so that we can do something to it. And the Bible is absolutely like that. That's a very Hebraic concept. Um, and so this Joseph saying, hey, don't just think about me. You know, don't just have pleasant thoughts of our time together here in this, you know, dark, nasty dungeon. Uh, don't just have pleasant thoughts about, you know, about the way I interpreted this dream or the way I made you laugh here or there. Or, you know, don't just think about, you know, the, the good times and the bad times. Don't, don't reminisce about me, but think about me and then mention me. Speak on my behalf. And so in verse 23, why does it say that the, the, the cupbearer, the butler, did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him? What this tells me is that he didn't think about him, neither did he mention him. Or he didn't mention him, he didn't even think about him. He was completely out of the picture of this guy's mind by the time he got back to the palace and, and was able to set the, the cup in, in Pharaoh's palm. And so these, these two aspects of remember and, and mentally and action always reminds me of the thief on the cross. Every time I come across this word, every time I, I study it, uh, every time I, I think about you know, someone named this or this idea, I think about the, the thief on the cross that tells Yeshua, when you enter, you know, when you enter your paradise, when you enter your kingdom, uh, remember me. Remember me. And I remember there's a, a worship leader that I used to listen to years and years ago named Clint Black. Some of you may, uh, may know who, no, Clint Brown, I'm sorry. Clint Black is the country singer, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, not Clint Black, Clint Brown. Uh, Clint Brown uh, and wrote some incredible worship music, but he wrote a song called Remember Me. And the chorus said, remember me, put me back together. Um, and and it's this idea of the, what is the thief on the cross telling Yeshua? Not like, hey, when you get into your kingdom, when you come into paradise, you know, when you come into your kingdom, um, just, you know, think about me. Like, what? What? No. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Think about me and make, make mention of me or, or take an action on my behalf. Wow. I mean, that's just, that may be seem really simple and elementary to some of you, but Gosh, that is so cool. That is such a cool way to think about what the the thief and the interaction that he and Yeshua are having uh, as you know uh, during their last their last moments here together on Earth. Remember me, bring me to your remembrance in your mind. But then, you know, Messiah Yeshua, Messiah, do something on my behalf. Do something on my behalf. And what does Yeshua say? He says, today you will be with me in, in paradise. Why, why reward him with that, with that answer? Why re- reward him with that response? Because it shows Yeshua, who knows what the idea of remembering is all about. What he, he knows what Zakar is all about. It shows him the faith and the, the, the trust and the belief that the thief has that Yeshua is able to give him standing in the kingdom in the world to come. Does that make sense? 
It, it shows that the thief understands who Yeshua is. Listen, the thief never prayed the sinner's prayer. He never got baptized. All those things that we, that we you know, we say, well, the, you, know, you have to do this formulaic thing that you have to do in order to, to be saved. He never did any of those things. It, it doesn't say that he repented of his sins. It doesn't say that he, it, none of those, I mean, it breaks all of our, um, our theological norms as to how a person, you know, is saved. And yet what he says when he asks Yeshua to remember him is exactly that. He is saying in that word, in that phrase, in that question, or, you know, in that, in that statement, remember me, he is, he is giving complete and, and, and total loyalty and submission to Yeshua. Just by, the, just by the concept of speak and act on my behalf, he's telling Yeshua, I believe that you have the authority to act on my behalf. You have the authority to, to take the past that I have here. It is repentance in a sense. It is without using certain words, he is repenting at that sense. He is giving his loyalty. He is submitting to Messiah at that very moment. All of that tied up in two little words, remember me. Because he understands and he knows Yeshua understands what that entails. Somebody ever said, hey, call me sometime. And you said, yeah, you know, I won't forget. You know, I'll call. And then you never call. Or somebody says, hey, you know, come by sometime. We'll have a cup of coffee. And you go, yeah, you know, and they say, like, don't forget, you know, really, come by and have a, you know, come by and visit sometime. Yeah, 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 sure, I'll come by. And you never go by. Have you really remembered? Have I really remembered when I tell somebody, hey, I'm going to check on you next week, you know, and just see how things are going. And, uh, and they said, don't forget. Oh, don't worry. I, I remember. And then we don't. We haven't remembered we might have thought about calling them through the week, but we get busy doing other things, or we might pass by somebody's house and like, oh, I got to stop by and visit, and yet I'm busy and I got to do. But we think, well, I did remember. I got to get brownie points for that. I, I did recall it to mind. It did come to mind, and I did think about it. You know, so like, give me some, give me some room for that. But in the truest sense, we haven't really remembered because remembering is nothing without action that supports it, without following through in action. And I, I just, I love, I love that concept that, that Yeshua, that God himself, Hashem remembers us. He remembers us when we pray. He remembers us when we do act, when we do good deeds and acts of righteousness. He, he is a God who remembers, which doesn't mean he just thinks pleasant thoughts about us. It means he, he, he recalls us and then he acts on our behalf. He speaks and acts on our behalf. That's what Zakar is all about. And, and for me, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. But verse 23 of chapter 40 of Genesis tells us that the cupbearer did not, did not remember him and he forgot him, both. So it's encompassing this. There was no hope for Joseph in this, in, in this particular instance. And so Pharaoh has a dream as we move on in chapter 41. Pharaoh has this dream. No one can interpret it. Uh, and so then verse 9 of chapter 41, then the, the chamber of the cupbearers spoke up before Pharaoh saying, um, my transgressions do I mention today? Here, the, see the word? Mention. Do I mention today? Pharaoh had become increased at his service, and sensed rather, at his servants and placed me in the, hand, in the, the ward of the house of the chamberlain, um, and me and the bakers, and we dream. And he retells the story. And so in verse 14, uh, Pharaoh sent and summoned Yosef. So the, the chamberlain of the, of the cupbearers, the, the, the butler, he, he says in his statement, this sin 
my transgressions do I mention today? Oh, he's remembering. And, and the mention doesn't come without recalling to mind. They go, they go together, as we, we've talked about. So um, Joseph comes in, tells his dream, and of course we know that uh, he's, re- he's a- rewarded and he becomes viceroy and he becomes second to Pharaoh, uh, and he, has, he puts together this plan uh, and, and, and all these things. He has uh, Ephraim and Manasseh in the process um, of all of this, and then the famine hits. Uh, verse 53 of chapter 41, the, the famine hits, and so chapter 42 is Yaakov sending his sons down to Egypt. And so they come uh, and they, they bow down before Yosef. In verse 6, uh, it says, Now Yosef, he was the viceroy over, over the land, uh, and he was a provider to all the people of the land. And Yosef's brothers came and they bowed down, their faces to the ground. And he saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he acted like a stranger toward them and spoke with them harshly. And so he, he goes through this whole thing. Now for the next several chapters, it's going to be this convoluted, and let's just be honest, this kind of weird story about Joseph making his brothers go through all these hoops and, and asking about Benjamin and, and, you know, go back and get him. No, well, I'm going to keep this one in jail and, and all this, this weird stuff um, that, that goes like, what is the, Why? Why go through all this? Is is Joseph being really like sneaky and and um, you know and manipulative, or or what 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 is the reason for all of this? Why have his brothers go through all of this all over, all over again? And this is the point of of what really what I wanted to get to um, get to today. During the story of Joseph, there's one thing that is missing through much of the story, especially in the, the beginning parts of the, of, of the story. There is, there is not a lot of mention of God in the beginning of Joseph's story. Um, God is not evoked very much at all through the, through the story, except, you know, towards the, the end. And so what does that tell us? Well, does it tell us that God's not involved? No, absolutely not. But for me, what it does is it, it shines a spotlight on, on Joseph himself as one who starts out as this, this dreamer, extremely gifted by God. These b- wonderful dreams and this, this interpretive gift and, and all these things. And yet he's, he's, he's young, he's immature, but he's very unwise. He's very unwise, highly gifted, highly zealous, very unwise. And so what we would expect, uh, from, depending on the, the background you grew up in, you know, the, the denominational background, you, what kind of church upbringing you had, in our lives, when we pray for wisdom, what do we think that looks like? What do we, what do we think that, that process of gaining wisdom looks like? Because from the, the places I come from, this may be the same for you, it may not be, so take it with a grain of salt. You know, if you identify, great. If not, just realize there are people out there that do think like this. And so you know, be a little, a little sensitive and a little patient. But for some of us, depending on the background you came from, when we ask God for things, we, it may not be said like this, but it's almost like we expect God to sprinkle us with the answer. You know what I mean? Like there's some, there's some magic fairy wisdom dust. And when we pray for wisdom, that God's going to go, okay, well, let me, you know, let me reach you across the throne here and reach into the wisdom vat, and I'll pour some out on your head. I'll sprinkle you with the magic wisdom fairy dust. And, and in some of our minds, 
some of our training, some of our background, that's the way it happens or that's the way it's supposed to happen. And then when it doesn't happen that way, we get frustrated. Uh, we have a cognitive dissonance that, that arises and we, we, we start to either lose faith or we lose hope, lose hope or at least we get frustrated. And, and for, for some people, it turns out being a thing well, that, you know, that there's, none of this stuff works. This is all just, you know, it's all just empty promises and, and malarkey and, and none, of it, none of it has any meaning because I, I did what they said. I prayed for wisdom and yet I don't, I don't have wisdom. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm gaining wisdom. Um, and so either God's not hearing or I'm not praying right or, or, or the whole thing is just a sham. And what the story of Joseph really tells me and what teaches me is that the fact that God is abs is, is is his name is not mentioned much? Not that he's not absent, but he's absent from the text, um, in, in large part. Is is that we really see Joseph growing in wisdom? We see Joseph growing in wisdom through experience. Now those experiences are orchestrated by are capitalized upon by God to, to shape and mold Joseph. God is definitely at work in, in, through the whole thing. I'm not saying that he's not. But through, from, from Genesis 1 on through this story, you have, you have God evoked all the time. You know, God is always very upfront and involved. And then you get to kind of Jacob and then for surely to Joseph's story, and, and God kind of just goes into the background. You, you focus more on the characters, on, on the men, on the patriarchs, more than you're focusing on God. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's God doing creation and all these, you know, all this stuff. And then in Noah's flood, you know, it's, it's, it's God doing the cleansing. And then the Tower of Babel, it's God, you know, coming down. And, and then with Abraham, God is always at the forefront. And, and then Isaac a little bit less, and Isaac's story is kind of short, and then Jacob a little bit less, and then there's really no, it's just like it's the, sh- the focus is being shifted away almost from God as the main character to the patriarch or the, to the character being the main, main character, <laughs> the center of focus. And I don't want that to make you, you know, uncomfortable or nervous. I think it's, it's very intentional. And the fact that, that although Hashem will do everything that he said he would do, what is this, we've talked about what is this, what is God's desire from the beginning of Scripture? It's to dwell with us, right? That's why he created sacred space, the Garden of Eden, this cosmos, is to dwell with us in partnership, right? We talked about chapter 12 uh, of Genesis when the calling of Avram, that God is, he finds a partner. He finds someone he can partner with that he can teach and mold and shape and mentor and father so that that person can grow into the likeness and image of God's own character. And he can go out and spread that character by teaching other people who God is, who the character of God is, what the personality of God is, what the presence of God means. And yet we find that God is not going to do all of that for us with some, again, kind of magical, mystical fairy dust that actually the, the greatest teacher that we have is life experience in conjunction with the, the knowledge of God that we have, the word of God. The greatest thing, the greatest miracle, the greatest growth we can have, the greatest maturity that we can ever achieve is by spending time study, in study and in prayer and then going out and living life and using what we've learned about God, from God, from His Word, through His Spirit, revealing things to us in prayer and in worship, 
and using those things to do life well and to learn wisdom. When we ask for wisdom, you've, have you prayed for wisdom? What usually happens? You pray for wisdom and life usually turns upside down, right? You're faced with some situation, some difficulty, some challenge, some, you know, some head-scratching situation that you have to navigate through. What is that? God is saying, you prayed for it. Now, the best way you can learn it is to experience it. There's, this, uh, there, there's this, this sickness, this weakness in the Hebrew Roots movement, the Messianic movement, the Ephraimite community, whatever you want to call us, that we have an itch that needs to be scratched, the itch of knowledge. And we pour so much time and energy and resources into gaining knowledge. And we have this thing about, you know, well, if I could just figure out this code, or if I could just figure out what this means, or if I could just figure out, you know, this little piece or that little piece, then all the world would snap into focus. And, and it just doesn't work that way. God grants us knowledge, and we are to seek knowledge, and we are to, to chase after wisdom. But what is wisdom? Wisdom is the marriage of knowledge and experience. You know, my kids are young and they're very smart. They're smarter than I am. And yet I'm a better problem solver, not because I know more. Yeah, I do know more, but because I've had experience and what doesn't work, right? And you are all the same. If you have kids or grandkids or, or, or you're young yourself, you know that there's some problems that, that you can solve that you're, you, the people younger than you just can't. Maybe you're a tradesman and maybe you've been in the trades forever and there's little tricks and little things that you know that would absolutely blow the rest of our minds. There are things that, that you can do in your trade that we would never even know how to approach, but because it's wisdom, because you, you have the knowledge, and we can go out and get the knowledge, but what we can't just attain is the experience. And so kind of coming back to our previous question, why does Joseph take his brothers through this whole convoluted, concocted mess? Because he is letting and allowing or forcing, if you want to say it that way, his brothers to relive what they did to him. Now, this is not revenge, right? This is not vengeance. This is not paying back. This is not, I'm going to make you suffer like I suffered. Joseph could have, when the brothers came and bowed down um, in chapter 42, right? The brothers come and bow down. Joseph recognized them. Why didn't he go, hey, it's me, Joseph, Boom, the brothers would have, they would have had probably a, a very, you know, in some senses, a very similar reaction to what they did eventually. They would have been shocked and amazed and, and all. But if Joseph were just going like, hey, I'm Joseph, let's, you know, we're all good. Like, let's be buddy, buddy, pow, pow. That wouldn't have been good enough because what Joseph is, is what God is using Joseph to do is take his brothers through the experience they know what they did was wrong. They mention it several times in these, these, la- these last few chapters in, uh, in Miketz. They say, you know, well, this is because of what we did to our brother and, and et cetera. They, they are fully aware. They know in their minds what they did was wrong, and they know that some way or another they are going to have to reap the consequences. But head knowledge is one thing. When that knowledge is solidified in you through experience, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. We talk about knowing God and the old thing, well, do you know about God or do you know God? 
that's a very good question. And it's become so cliche that we don't even think about it anymore. To know about God is to know a bunch of facts and, and scripture and quote and all that kind of, that's great. But to know God, I, I, would, rather, I would rather walk through life with someone. Like, you know, I think about my, my parents, you know, old, older folks that I've been in church with you know, for years and stuff. Listen, they don't know Hebrew. They don't know, they don't know, you know, Jewish eschatology. They don't know anything about the temple. They don't, but what do they, what do they know? They know they've been through hell and back and they know that God has been faithful. And so you can quote all the Hebrew words you want. You can quote all the, you know, the statistics and the genealogies and you can do all that stuff you want. But what those people know is they know how to pray and they know how to cling to God and they know how to, how to recognize his faithfulness through their lives. And so Joseph is, is causing his brothers to replay his story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one of you in jail, i.e. the pit, right? And then you're going to have to go get your younger brother, the one whom your father loves. All these things are replaying Joseph's story so that at the end, one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Scripture, in my opinion, probably maybe only, only surpassed by the, the crucifixion scene and the resurrection, one of the most powerful and passionate uh, uh, scenes in all of scriptures when he finally reveals himself and they, that he cries and they cry. And, and it's just this unbelievable out, outpouring of emotion. Why? Because they, all, they not only knew what they did was wrong, but now they've lived it and they've received that wisdom that only comes through experience. They've been forgiven and they're grateful. Thank you guys for hanging out with me this week. We'll catch you again on the next episode. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. 